Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to How Should I Be Positioned on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. On this podcast, we do like to discuss macro developments and asset allocation with our UBS Chief Investment Office as well as our third-party asset manager partners. Uh, Let me take a moment here to introduce who is joining us for today's conversation. Uh, Glad to welcome back Jason Trejo, the head of asset allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Uh, Glad to welcome back David Bianco, Chief Investment Officer for the Americas at DWS. So Jason, David, it's great to be with you both as always. Uh, Thank you for spending some time with our listeners, our clients, our advisors, and looking forward to the conversation. Great to be back again. Thank you. It's good to be here. David, thank you for joining us today. So, Jason, David, as you both know, investors probably looking forward to turning the page on Q1 of 2022. It has been a very challenging period for returns, not quite the start of the year that investors were hoping for or perhaps expecting. And you think about the Fed's hawkish pivot, the tragic invasion of Russia into Ukraine, which has materialized now into a full-on war. So at big picture level, David, how has your outlook changed given what I mentioned given the returns we've witnessed uh, relative to what your outlook for the year might have been at January 1st? Uh, sure. And uh, thinking about how our outlook at the, uh, as of this moment versus what we were thinking in late uh, December of 2021, early uh, 2022 in January when we do a lot of our year-ahead outlooks, uh, the, the world changed. And it is uh, one of these situations where one of the risk scenarios became uh, the actual scenario, and that is this Russian invasion of Ukraine. And at this stage, everybody uh, knows what's happened. We were aware of this risk, but we didn't think it would turn out to be uh, a full-scale invasion. Uh, we kind of thought the worst case would be another incursion into Ukraine territory, maybe maybe in as, as, as bad as it would be, taking a slice of Ukraine. But this uh, just full onslaught against Ukraine um, has, been, has been shocking. And it's a, it's a, it's a macroeconomic shock. It's caused us to take down our growth forecast for the European economy and the world economy, um, but mostly at Europe, just a little bit at the United States. But it's caused us to raise our inflation forecasts. It's, uh, it's, it's a supply-side shock, particularly in the areas of energy, both oil and natural gas, as well as grains, foods. And I'm, I'm sure you've heard a, a bit about that. But it, it is something that is... It, it reminds me that the 2020s have uh, been a difficult decade so far. It started off with what is also a supply-side shock, and I made many analogies of the pandemic being like a war. And now we find ourselves, or at least Europe does, uh, in a real shooting war. And wars and pandemics, these are supply-side shocks. They cause inflation. There's also been you know, so much fiscal and monetary policy trying to accommodate uh, the, the shock of the pandemic back in 2020-2021, um, and that's contributed to inflation. The Fed's trying to unwind that, but now it's so difficult for the Fed to do that without posing risks to the broader economy. Um, it's a difficult time to fight inflation during the time of war. And although the Fed yesterday made it clear that they, after their 25 basis point hike, they intend to hike uh, pretty much every meeting this year and four times in 2023, I think the lesson here is that it's difficult to plan things one year, two years in advance. It's totally reasonable. We need to make plans. We need to make forecasts. And I expect that the Fed's plans are reasonable and they would like to follow through 
uh, on all this hiking. But a lot can go wrong, and the economy is not as robust in the U.S. or particularly not Europe and the rest of the world uh, at the times of other Fed hiking periods. So we are we do believe the Fed will continue to hike. But we're concerned about the, the volatility and even the risks to the profitability of the S&P 500 and the economic growth of the U.S. economy even uh, as the Fed continues to follow through on its plans over the course of the coming year or two. So our thinking has come down to we've got this threat um, to Europe and allies. Russia has challenged the world order. And some people are asking, is this just another geopolitical um, flash that will, will, will be forgotten in six months, a year from now. Our view is, no, this is substantial, and uh, this is uh, unforgivable what Russia has done to you know, their neighboring sovereign country, Ukraine. And these sanctions, and there's probably more to come, are going to stay for a very long period of time. And hopefully the Western and world order stays intact, and I believe it will, but Russia's out of it. And that itself is something that's going to take time for the European economy uh, to uh, heal from, and particularly on the energy front. Now, I know that right now Europe continues to import oil and natural gas, but the more of a resistance and the moral high ground that Ukraine gains with the world every day, I think it's going to be increasingly difficult for Europe not to make some tough choices and uh, turn off, maybe not all, but some of their Russian oil imports and even natural gas. So that's how some of the things have changed since uh, the start of the year. David, you put it quite well how the world today is very different relative to what the world looked like at the beginning of the year. And Jason, in consideration of that, you and I have spoken over the past few weeks about how the CIO has had to adjust its outlook in consideration of these events. Well, if you think about today versus where we were on January 1st, you know, three kind of kind of ways I would kind of categorize the changes in our thinking. You know, one big picture is, you know, the world is different today for a lot of reasons that David just alluded to. And so this is going to have implications not just for the, this year, but in some ways, it, you know, won't really be fully felt until, you know, 2023 and beyond, maybe the rest of the decade. Like that's how sort of seismic this shift would be. So I'm not going to elaborate too much on that. But if we bring it back more to the kind of the market view, there's the economic outlook and there's the market outlook. And from an economic outlook, you know, the start of the year, we thought inflation is probably peaking in Q1 and then moderating throughout the year. Uh, growth, you know, a bit of a slowdown at the start because of Omicron, but, you know, be solid in the first half, second half of this year, it starts to moderate and get back towards kind of long-term trend. What's happened with this invasion is, uh, you know, we've had this essentially a stagflationary shock where inflation will be higher probably for a little bit for longer, and the moderation might be more gradual because of higher commodity prices. So it's made the inflation trajectory look worse. At the same time, it is causing more supply-side problems, you know, particularly for Europe, less so for the U.S., but there is implications here. So the growth trajectory that we, you know, we're expecting a good first half still fine, um, but in, you know, trending towards long-term growth, maybe at a, at a lower level. So again, sort of the growth outlook is, is deteriorated. So yeah, it all up the macro environment is you know, directionally similar, but at the at worst magnitudes. But then you kind of come back to, well, as an investor and the market outlook, you know, you have to ask them, like, well, how much of this is already kind of priced in? Because, you know, the S&P is down, you know, 10, 12%. You're seeing, you know, European equities at some point were down close to 20%. Bond moves have been significant, so they've already priced in a lot of Fed rate hikes. So does the, does the market outlook change that much? And 
you know, we did begin the year constructive on equities in a, you know, a couple of weeks ago, given the uncertainty stemming from, you know, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Well, we don't have much conviction or confidence in our ability to forecast how this is going to play out in the coming, you know, weeks and couple of months. You know, there's situations and scenarios where things could get much worse and things could actually get, you know, start to improve, you know, relatively quickly, you know, in the next, you know, month or so. Given that, it's just hard to have conviction on how you want to like make big bets in your sort of portfolio to have a really positive outlook on, on the markets. So we went back to the more of a neutral view on equities overall. Now that's not negative and we still see upside, but you know, and given how much the markets have moved, so a lot of this is already priced in. So I think we're not necessarily pessimistic on, on, on risk assets at this point in time, but definitely more cautious than when we were at the start of the year. So I think that's big picture, you know, st- structural changes to the world order. Uh, with multi-year implications, economic outlook has gotten worse, but the market's sort of pricing a lot of that. So from a tactical investing perspective, while we've de-risked, it's not a dramatic change in terms of how we've been you know, positioned portfolios. Thank you, Jason. I do want to follow back up on the Fed. I know, David, a few moments ago, you did mention how yesterday, Wednesday, the Fed did exercise that 25 basis point hike, as was largely expected. And the Fed does sound quite clear as far as their policy course for the balance of 2022. But what might serve, David, as a reason for the Fed to alter its hawkish roadmap? Well, Look, again, I think the Fed uh, is making very reasonable plans. We'll see if they'll be able to follow through on those plans. Uh, I also think the Fed, it's the Fed's job to fight inflation. And the Fed itself finds it finds itself fighting a war, if you will. And if you don't want a war to get bloody, it's probably not a bad idea to talk tough and threaten a lot of actions uh, as a form of deterrence. I think the Fed is really trying to signal to markets and, and to the best it can to the real economy, it can't do much about oil prices. But you know, to, the, to the real economy, it's trying to manage expectations. It's trying to prevent a wage price spiral from, from building. And it's trying to say it, it's going to fight inflation as much as it can. But I don't think it wants to, to, to risk a recession or cause a recession. Um, so I do think the Fed respects markets. And if the equity market was down... Uh, in bear market territory and all other kinds of indications of, of financial tightening, I think the Fed would skip a meeting or two. Um, so it's not that we disagree that the Fed will be hiking, and we do think eventually the Fed will get to 2% or higher on the overnight rate, but it may take uh, a little bit more than a couple of years. And I think uh, if you are you know, hoping for a long-lasting economic expansion, uh, the, the Fed should hopefully take a little bit of time in, in getting rates back to neutral or maybe a bit above neutral to, to dampen inflation. Um, but look, I, 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 I do agree that part of the way the world has changed has been priced into markets, but not entirely, and we're not really fully comfortable with the reward for the risks. I have a 4,600 target for the S&P 500 at the end of this year and also in 12 months' time. The S&P is... 4375 right now. So there's some upside, but I think not a whole lot of upside given the risks and the likely volatility along the way. Our view is that it's more likely that the S&P from about 4400 is more likely to have 5% or more of a, of a, of a down move rather than a 5% or more up move in, in the near term. So we're tactically cautious. And um, uh, you know, trying to position in, in a market like this where, you know, it, you can't run to the usual defensive assets like treasury bonds because we do think treasury yields 
are likely to grind higher, not too much higher from here, but grind higher and with inflation not earning a, a positive return. But we're trying to pick the right parts of the equity market, and that's a lot of defensives, d- domestic defensives, utilities, REITs, healthcare, um, but a domestic cyclical that we do think benefits from the Fed making every uh, every hiking whenever it can, as much as it can, without endangering uh, the economy and 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 driving uh, risk assets down in a big way, uh, is banks. So we find ourselves most overweight healthcare, but then also banks, and uh, we, we have plenty of utilities and REITs uh, as, as an overweight at, at this moment. I think the the manufacturing story is the one that is most damaged uh, by what's occurred. The uh, the, the, the disruptions in supply chains, the higher input costs, we know that everybody, uh, the, the order books are strong, but a lot of the manufacturers from automakers to industrial capital goods to semiconductors to consumer goods, durables, everything uh, has, has been disrupted and the cost of production is higher. That's what's likely to last longer. And the thing about Europe, particularly its public companies, um, Europe is, is a big manufacturing uh, economy and a big manufacturing equity market. It's basically banks and manufacturers and some commodity producers. That's what Europe is all about. And we think this environment is challenging uh, to that mix of businesses. So Europe is was you know looking at as a really attractive value opportunity before Russia invaded Ukraine. It's one we're keeping. We've gotten more cautious on. We're keeping an eye on it. We just think we should wait wait for longer. Uh, before acting upon uh, European industrials, which I, I, I was attracted to. Now I want to wait longer. Um, and, and we think the wait's going to be quite a bit longer uh, for European banks because the ECB is likely to lag the Fed's hikes in a very big way. Um, so, you know, we're, we're favoring U.S. equities. Uh, we actually like U.S. small caps uh, a little bit more than large caps right now because a lot of the, the banks are, are at the small caps. Um, and a lot of the, the industrial companies are at small caps, and we think that's that's worth the wait for the uh, domestic industrial smaller cap companies. Um, but moving abroad is something that's been um, hasn't paid off, and we've been wanting to do more investing abroad. We've advocated it from time to time, kind of <laughs> gone overweight and then pulled back to underweight several times with European equities. Uh, but you know, right now we think it's, it's best to stick with the U.S. And while we expect interest rates to grind higher, we don't think real interest rates get back to positive territory. We think we have long-lasting negative real interest rates at the short end of the curve and the long end of the curve. So we're not troubled by the valuations of big-cap profitable technology or communications companies. Frankly, I think the sell-off that's occurred at these companies, um, and they're not physical businesses, their digital businesses, they're not suffering from supply-side constraints. They do have pricing power uh, in line with inflation and often better, and yet they don't have costs going up uh, as much as inflation because they're not physically intensive businesses. They have huge economies of scale. They have true pricing power economically. So I, I think a lot of people's plan for the year was run away from tech and communications and pile into things like manufacturing. Uh, I would, I would I would rethink that. I think you should probably get back to digital businesses faster uh, than, 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 than was the plan. I think I find them attractive. And I know energy is the best performer uh, year to date. 
And look, energy is a geopolitical risk protector. Oil prices did surge. They're off their highs, but they did surge. Um, and that makes sense. And, and oil and energy stocks can go higher from here with these geopolitical risks. But I am not attracted to the long-term outlook for energy companies. I, I think it's not just the transition risks. I think there's a lot of tax risks. And I think when, hopefully, uh, things settle down in the Ukraine, Europe and even the United States is going to turn their attention to energy. And they're going to probably put a lot of pressure on these energy companies to accelerate the transition and, uh, and ensure reliable supply. Uh, and let's put it this way. The energy companies are very profitable right now. I don't think these profits are sustainable. I think oil, profit, oil prices over time will go down. And I think you need to think about the risks of, you can call it windfall profit taxes or wartime profit taxes. But if oil prices stay high because of geopolitical reasons, if they go higher because of policy decisions, tough policy decisions that the EU might make, uh, I think it's possible that you get wartime profit taxes introduced on big energy companies in Europe and, and, and even possibly in the United States, but more likely in Europe. Hey, David, actually, a couple things, um, you know, that I wanted to ask you about, which, you know, they're, they're related to like on, on rates and inflation, you know, because that was, you know, you know part of uh, yesterday's, you know, Fed announcement, obviously fighting inflation, but also there's a little bit more on the hawkish side with rates going higher. So, you know, there's been a Discussion in the market. See, this was to you know pre-pandemic of you know what level of rates starts to become kind of painful you know for equities and you know sort of you know, given your you know historical analysis you know how high you know uh, if the ten-year gets to two and a half or if it stays where it is like where do the pain points kind of kick in and you know I know every you know environment is different so, like there's certain things that in this environment would would be more inflation like it could be you know more challenge but like it's just in general like what would you read to be in terms of like yeah, if rates go a little bit higher, equities can yeah. be okay. Here's the thing. I mean, I'm, I'm going to answer the question, and then I'm going to kind of – first of all, I'm going to say to you that um, I think the S&P 500 can sustain a 20 or higher PE, uh, and I'm still comfortable, provided I can be confident in the earnings estimate, I'm still comfortable with a 21, even a 22 PE on my – earnings estimates for, say, 2022, 2023, um, as long as the 10-year tips yield doesn't jump above 0%, and right now it's still negative 60 basis points, a week ago it was negative 100 basis points, as long as the 10-year Treasury yield doesn't go to, really, it would have to get to 3% or higher uh, before it really started threatening a 20 PE, given where inflation is and likely to be. Um, and the Fed funds rate... I, I welcome the Fed funds hiking because it's going to benefit bank profits and it's likely going to even benefit S&P profits overall. But it's missing it's me saying that from approaching it from a valuation perspective um, and even a base case earnings perspective is missing this. Now is no time for a surging dollar. Now, as much as I want inflation to come down and it's dangerous to allow it to stay this high, because it you know, runs the risk of a wage price spiral being built. It is also dangerous for the Fed to you know, overly advertise uh, you know, a commitment to hiking, because what it would do is it would likely drive the dollar up, and in my view, drive the euro down, and make oil all the more expensive in Europe – 
and make it more painful if Europe should, and I, in my opinion, I think Europe should, stop importing Russian oil or at least start introducing quotas and bringing down uh, the, the imports of Russian oil fast. Now, I know that's difficult medicine to swallow, but is it really too much to ask? Um, and I just want a detour on this. I mean, if, if Europe stopped importing Russian oil, well, then, you know, oil prices would go up in Europe. They would go down in other places of the world that are not the EU or NATO that are still buying Russian oil. Um, so the world price would be unchanged, if you will, but it'd be higher uh, for, for Europe and a little bit for the United States. But most importantly, the proceeds Russia would be getting would be lower. They'd be forced to sell it at a discount to the remaining buyers in the world out of Asia. And, you know, the goal here, if you don't want to have a shooting war, it's to have an economic war. And it's to fire back at the weapon that Russia is using, which is energy. And I think the way to fire back is to reduce the value of that, uh, that, that asset that they've been using to fund the war, which is oil and natural gas. So what I'm getting at here is if the Fed hikes, it makes the dollar stronger. It's likely going to make the euro weaker, particularly if Europe you know, makes tough choices on Russian uh, energy. And when you think about oil prices, we saw them get to 120, 130 a barrel. But the last time oil was that higher and even a bit higher, the euro was a dollar sixty. Right now, the euro is a dollar ten. So now would be a really the Fed needs to make the right decisions for the United States and so forth. But uh, it should think about the breaking points of the European economy because if the European economy breaks, it will reverberate back to the U.S. economy. And the, my point is, now is no time for a strong dollar, weak euro. And that's what Fed aggressive hiking would do, particularly if it was combined with the with Europe making some tough choices on Russian energy. I mean, it's a great point in terms of you know, the Fed because we you know, ultimate responsibilities for the U.S. economy. But the reality is, you know, I guess one of the benefits or one of the consequences of like you know the dollar being the sort of world reserve currency is that the Fed is essentially the world central banker. And and if it hikes and causes the dollar appreciate. The ECB doesn't want the inflation there either, so you know it's higher prices for them. They probably have to tighten, maybe more aggressively other than they otherwise would, and that ends up maybe over tightening across the board. This is a little reminiscent of what happened in late 2018 when the Fed was tightening, yep. when the, economy, the global economy was a little stressed, and we saw what happened, like when the equity market sold off steeply in in December. So I think there's, you know, there's definitely scope for more hikes in the near term, but as you know, the risk is if the Fed goes too far, and if they go as far as you know what they implied with their dot plot yesterday. You know, I'm, I'm just skeptical that, um, you know, the economy, the U.S., the global economy can kind of handle that, um, which is why I ultimately think they'll, they're talking tough now. They're trying to kind of, you know, deal with inflation. But as, you know, we get further down the line, I think ultimately they'll, they'll flinch and, and sort of not go as far as as they think, either because they're worried about the risks or just the environment won't allow it. Um, but yeah, I, I, wanted to just, I agree, Jason. Yep. <laughs> one final question. Like, so thinking, you know, tactically, but even maybe like a little more strategically, the reality is inflation is going to be above 2%, you know, maybe even 3% for certainly this year and next year. And it could be, you know, we could be in a, an inflationary environment going forward because we have more, you know, fiscal spending on military, environmental matters, whatever it might be. So just thinking about an equity investor, you know, you laid out sort of what you like right now. But if you're kind of taking a step back to think, well, in a in an elevated inflation environment that we haven't really experienced in, in two decades or, or longer, you know, what do you like in that sort of situation to kind of, kind of construct a portfolio? And, you know, knowing not knowing for sure if it's going to happen, but like kind of hedging your portfolio for that inflation outcome. Is it more real assets? Is it more kind of value stocks? Is it less tech? Well, well, go higher? Mm -hmm. it, it is real assets. 
Um, however, let me let me say a, a few things. I do think inflation is going to stay well above the Fed's target uh, for the next couple of years, but the Fed will try to take some actions to bring it toward its target. Um, and I and I, I think risk is to the upside on, on inflation because we're facing a lot of supply side challenges with the you know the big driver of disinflation for 30 40 years was globalization and look the world order is a little rocky right now and we're, we are very dependent at this stage for productivity to be a driver of disinflation um, from like digital productivity and, and technology whereas global trade and all the huge benefits that come from global trade may not be as powerful of a tailwind for, for disinflation. It's not happening now, and it may be a challenge for, for this decade. So inflation risks are high. I agree with that. Now, the thing is, what do you do about it? And I think you know, the, a lot of you know, need one, I would point out that people in the late 1970s and early 80s and you know, even all the way into the early 90s would have been thrilled if one of the investment options presented to them was Treasury inflation-protected securities. Now, this might not be a, a tremendous return, but it is the most uh, certain inflation-protecting asset. Now, right now, you would have to you know, sign up for, say, negative 60 basis points uh, over 10 years to be guaranteed CPI inflation protection. Not a bad deal. You know, and I don't really think you know real interest rates are going to get much above zero for quite some time anyhow. So the closer negative long-term real yields get towards zero, I find that to be fairly compelling. So one, I would point out that in the bond world, there is a real asset, and it is Treasury inflation-protected securities. Probably has a point, place in the portfolio more than ever before. And before you run off and do things like buy a lot of gold or cryptocurrencies or whatever else, uh, just consider tips. I think that's my <laughs> my good service advertisement to you out there. Now, you know, let's make more return than than just merely inflation protection. And I think you do need to look at real assets, but be careful with you know what kind of real assets. One, I think people underestimate that banks, while they're intermediaries of nominal assets and nominal liabilities, they're still a real business. And they still have plenty of real assets from the technology they use, the branches they have, the know-how they have. And as interest rates go up, because the, if you believe the Fed will take some actions to fight inflation, dampen inflation, those higher interest rates are going to boost the net interest margins at banks. And you know, I don't know. I don't believe oil prices are sustainable at over 100. But I do believe the Fed funds rate will get to 2% and will be sustained at 2% or a bit higher. So I see higher profits out of the banks and those being sustainable or normal profits at higher levels. So I like the banks. I think the banks are one of the, you know, it's a true value play and it's one of the, just the overlooked inflation protection plays, uh, you know, as long as the Fed puts through some hikes uh, to, to fight inflation. And then there's this kind of debate. It's also related to the growth versus value debate or the tangible assets versus intangible assets debate. And a lot of people, you know, they, oh, inflation's here. I better load up on energy companies or industrial companies or just, you know, the real kind of businesses that just seem heavy, you know, and, and really tangible, if you will, with a lot of physical assets. Um, look, I, I think you're better off with the digital assets. They're showing just as good, if not better, pricing power. As I said, you know, most of these uh, 
physical businesses that are raising their prices in line with inflation, their costs are going up just as fast, if not faster. Uh, whereas there's not the same kind of cost pressure at the digital businesses. And we're seeing their margins are at high levels. I think they can go higher. Uh, the big complaint about the digital businesses was the valuations. And, and we shared that concern for some of the smaller cap on profitable ones. But the big cap ones that are very profitable, that have enormous and enviable economies of scale, uh, I think that's a very good place to be in an inflationary world. And uh, I think if you had those type of high-quality digital businesses back in the 70s and 80s, and you did if you, if you looked for them really early on, but if they were as evident and in your face as they are now, as, as big market cap constituents as they are now, um, that would have helped investors uh, weather the 70s and 80s. Um, so I, I think there are some good choices out there for investors to hedge against inflation, protect against inflation, and there are different, thankfully, different choices uh, that are available from the 70s and 80s tips and digital assets. Uh, digital assets are real, and just owing to the nature of the contract, tips are real. So yes, I favor real assets, but be careful what kind of real assets. Well, David, Jason, you have left our advisors, our listeners, our clients with a lot to consider here with respect to allocation and do appreciate your insights into the current environment and what an outlook for the balance of 2022 might look like. So, David Bianco, Jason Dreho, great catching up with you on the podcast today and thank you very much for spending some time with us. Appreciate it. Looking forward to next time. Thank you. All right. Thanks, David, for joining us today. Thank you, Dan. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.